interviewing your favorite musicians, comedians, and other creative souls. This is The Carrie Edelman Show. Welcome to The Carrie Edelman Show. I am so honored and excited today to have on the award-winning composer and pianist, Jeffrey Beagle. So we are going to bring him on in a moment, and I do see him. He called in because he uh, had sent me a little message, so everything's good to go. Um, so he's going to be accompanying some of the amazing artists and creative individuals that I have had the honor of interviewing on my show. I've done about 250-plus interviews now, and some of the people I've had the pleasure to interview include comedian and head writer Seinfeld of Seinfeld, Peter Melman, co-creator of The Daily Show and former David Letterman TV producer, Madeline Smithberg, TV writer and New York best-selling author Jennifer Christian Armstrong, Mad Magazine illustrator Ed Steckley, and world-renowned mastering engineer Mayar Appelbaum. So that's just a few. So if you're interested, please go to iTunes, check out some of the interviews. I really do an in-depth, different type of interview where I really want to delve into the person's um, life story. We all know they're exceptional at their talents and and what they do, but I really want to kind of take a different turn. Um, So before we bring Jeff on, I also like to just mention that although I have Um, A background in clinical psychology. My show is purely um, for entertainment purposes. We are not doing any type of formal therapy analysis or stuff like that. Occasionally, we might delve into something in a more, you know, educational type of um, forum, but it's it's not going to be any type of a, a clinical forum, so to speak. So if you're tuning in, create a Blog Talk Radio account by going to blogtalkradio.com. And let's do an introduction for Jeffrey Beagle, and then we'll bring him on. As I mentioned, he's an award-winning pianist and composer. Me personally, he has so many exceptional accomplishments in his career. Um, After he studied at Juilliard, he was the first to do many things, and those include the first to create classical live stream recitals, the first largest consortium of orchestras commissioning new music, and the first artist to record for the Steinway & Sons label. In 2018, he was featured as a solo artist for Kenneth Fuchs' Piano Concerto Spiritualist with the London Symphony Orchestra, where he received a Grammy Award for Best Classical Compendium. So today, we're going to take him on the journey of his life and uh, tell you about how he got involved in what he does. Hi, Jeffrey. How are you? I'm great. How are you, Carrie? Good. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me on the show. Absolutely. Yeah, I am beyond impressed um, with everything that you've accomplished. I think it's interesting to start out real quick, and we're going to then delve into, of course, your childhood and build up to um, all the accomplishments that you've achieved, is that, you know, I know that for musicians, composers, artists, even now, even though we're, you know, unfortunately two years into this pandemic, um, that it still has been a really challenging time sometimes. And I can really emphasize just the struggles that people in this creative world have had to deal with. If you want to just, you know, briefly comment on on how you've managed that throughout the pandemic. Sure. Um, it was really almost two years ago where, and I was traveling uh, right up until lockdown, and okay. I was still wearing a mask because I knew there was something going on. And I had students who were saying, you know, I have friends who know this and that, telling telling me, tell my friends to wear masks. And, you know, they're worried about me in airports and everywhere. But I was pretty careful. And then, of mm-hmm. course, came the lockdown. And 
the year or so, the first year before any vaccinations were available or anything of the sort pointing forward was a time of really going outside the box. And the box basically had teaching in your school, which is Brooklyn College, or teaching mm -hmm. privately at home in person, or going to concerts, going in airports, going in planes, staying in hotels, working with orchestras, no masks, face-to-face, -face, the normal, what was normal world. And it was a time of, I wouldn't say reflection, but it was a time of soul-searching and thinking about other ways to do what we love doing and helping other people at the same time. And, you know, music is in many ways very therapeutic, but also self-therapeutic. And I did concerts every week from home, which are on my YouTube channel. And every Saturday I did a concert. And then I started to compose some music. Within a month of March pandemic 2020, mm -hmm. I started to compose short pieces, a couple of short waltzes of hope, and I was also teaching online for the Sonata Piano Camp, which is based in Vermont, where a lot of people from all over the country and even in other countries come to converge there for like 10 days to kind of learn from each other, play for each other. And we couldn't go. So right. Polly, uh, Polly, who runs the camp, she put it online, did a fantastic job. It was such a great outlet for us as teachers and musicians to be able to teach and perform using the technology available. So we had to just tweak the way we make music and teach music in mm -hmm. a very positive and productive way. And then later in the time of 2020, knowing that there were no concerts for the foreseeable future, of course, that was a, an emotional, physical, and financial uh, struggle. But we had to just find new ways to do it. So teaching online became the norm. And then I started composing more. So I could just say composing became an outlet for me that I had not really had for piano writing in my life. Okay. It was mostly choral, choral music writing. But for piano, I never felt that I should even bother with, with, with Beethoven and Chopin in my fingertips. Why should I even right. dare to try? But it no, was but a way to let off some steam, I think. Yeah, like you said, I think, and, and I think that's a great way to to say that is, and again, you you have the talent and maybe it was just your own, you know, we all have our own insecurities or feelings of, can I really mm -hmm. do it? So again, you were able to, to take that time, like you said, and in a positive and very structured way, use that and show that, oh, wow, I can do this too, even though probably we know that you could have done it anyway. But I think that's great. And I think, you know, a lot of people, of course, understandably, it was anxiety provoking for all different mm -hmm. types of careers, but especially the entertainment industry. But I think that was a time, like you said, to really maybe say, hey, is there something else I can try to do to use this time constructively and take advantage of it? Right. I'm not going to talk exactly. about it on the air, but I actually started again. I'm nowhere near you, but I literally started. I had um, a really nice keyboard that was bought for me several years ago. And I was like, I wanted to dabble and I never did. And I started dabbling with it. And now two years later, again, very basic, but I'm telling exactly. you, it was therapeutic and, mm -hmm. you know, I was always intimidated by it, but I was like, nope, you know what, you're going to take the time and start learning some stuff. And, and yeah, so I, I agree with you. It, you know, because my whole life's always been recreating other people's music 
and mm-hmm. to create my own has always been ha- hasn't been my focus. But I okay. suppose because of so much energy emotionally inside of myself, I just felt the need to let it out through writing music because I didn't really have the access to perform it uh, in public the way we normally would. And uh, it's not like a a job where a lot of people were able to still work online and get a paycheck. So (laughs) it became a a weird new normal. Absolutely. And I think, and again, I don't want to take too much time away from you, but I think too, when, you know, when the pandemic was happening and I here and there, just because of my, my career and my job, I take breaks, unfortunately from the show because of just other stuff that's just, you know, competing with it. But I really use that time too, to start it up again and do more interviews and bring people on, like you said, with the goal to support them and promote them and and get their names out there in whatever way we could. So people could buy their books or check out whatever they were working on. Yes, exactly. It's also been a, a time where people, found new ways to connect with each other in ways they we probably never really thought much of. We were forced to really turn to the world of technology to make these mm-hmm. connections and to try to help other people using those technological advances, which we're very lucky to have. I mean, a lot of people say they're zoomed out. I get it. But <laughs> can you imagine not having what we've right. had? Right. I mean, how did they do it 100 years ago during the, the pandemic back then? I mean, Wow. Right. Right. Definitely. Okay. So let's start delving into um, your background and and you growing up. So, you know, I know that you grew up on Long Island and understand that you Mm -hmm. you still live there. Um, If you want to just just as a quick highlight, what made you continue to stay there and, you know, throughout your adulthood um, on Long Island? And then we'll go back to getting into your childhood. Yeah, well, basically, it's been family. My mom is still living in Long Island, and uh, my wife's mom still lives in uh, Brooklyn, and my kids went to school here, and I teach here, so there really was no uh, draw to go elsewhere, uh, although there had been opportunities to do so. I mean, even 20-some-odd years ago, I was invited to uh, consider a job at one of the big music schools out west, and I knew the director of the department, and he says, you know, I, I, I think you'd, be, you'd really love it here, and I'd love you here, but, you know, we'll mm-hmm. go through the process and see how the rest of the committee feels about it. I turned it down. Wow. And it was really because, I, yeah, I mean, had life gone differently? Who knows? I, you know, I, I get now uh, students asking me questions. Like at, uh, I was out in Idaho in September, and uh, it was a high school group. One young man came to the microphone and says, do you have any advice for us, for our futures? And I said, oh, that's easy. And he says, oh, that fast? I said, it is easy. <laughs> I said, it's easy because I've had to learn it for myself, just as in The Wizard of Oz. And when mm-hmm. Linda says she had to learn it for herself, follow your yellow brick road. That's it. There really isn't much else I could say to anybody because there's so many things that we try to make happen, mm-hmm. and when we try too hard, they don't happen for some reason. That puzzle piece or that brick just doesn't fit in that right. road at that time. And then other things we don't try to make happen or don't even work at do. Right. And there's really no rhyme or reason except, you know, whatever's laid out there is there. I've had composers say to me, I don't know how I wrote that piece. I say that about some of the pieces. I've, I don't know how I wrote that piece. And I remember saying to him, you know, that piece was already 
meant to be in existence. You just had to take the steps to get it to where it is now. Right, right. And I I just kind of look at life that way now. And it, it's made it easier in some respects because it takes a certain weight off your shoulders of, mm-hmm. you know, thinking this has to happen, that has to happen. If that doesn't happen, what if? And that, you can't live that way, obviously. So I've learned to kind of go where life takes me. No, I like that. And I like that analogy, like with the bricks, like you said, sometimes it's just it's not fitting at that time. Or, mm-hmm. And I think exactly. and I think that's a great from a psychological perspective to look at that way, too, because I'm that type of person, too. Like, you got to get this done. You got to do this. You got to push. And then sometimes yeah. when you take that break and you back off a little bit, like some of the people I've interviewed, I'm yeah. like, oh, I could have never have gotten that person on my show. But I was like, you know what, let me just reach out and see what happens. And didn't expect it and then oh yeah sure that sounds great and I'm like okay yeah, so I exactly. like like you said you just kind of have to try everything and if it works exactly then great if not then you pivot and then you kind of say okay that didn't work let me try to do something a little differently um yeah I like how you and how you, you know that. it's like I always say if you told me two years ago that this would happen well who knew I mean I started writing music, and then I wrote a, a piece uh, in honor of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Yes, and we're going to get and into it became that a little what, later. We'll talk yeah. about that. But yeah. how it evolved was if you told me two years ago, in a year and a half, you will play your piece with the Dallas Symphony Orchestra, which wow. one of your students at Brooklyn College will orchestrate, I would say, what planet are you on? <laughs> right. I mean, you know, we don't no, that's know. Phenomenal. We just have to go where it goes. It's strange. Yeah. Well, and that, but you also have to, and don't, and don't negate the fact that you have to put the work in and you do, you know, you're definitely from what I can see about you is, you know, you're resilient and you're hardworking and you persevere and you don't give up. And that's a huge piece of most careers where people are successful. It's rare that something is just handed to someone, you know, that happens, but yeah. Interesting. Many years ago, I played uh, in the home of Isaac Stern, the violinist. And I was about in my 20s, 25, 6. And he, we played some Brahms and Schubert. He tapped his bow on my shoulder and says, it's very beautiful, very good playing, mm-hmm. very, very, very good. And he said, you have to struggle. Mm-hmm. I didn't know what he meant. I think looking back now, what he meant was nothing is going to come as easily as you would like it to you know, in other words, yes, I'm Isaac Stern. I can move mountains for artists. But mm-hmm. you still need to go through life, your life. And part of becoming a, for me at least, part of for me to be the musician I've become or even the way I play piano, you know, I always say that the keyboard reflects everything about the person playing it, which is one of my piano technicians told me this. And that stayed with me for over four decades now. And I think that there were many struggles. Nothing came easy. It wasn't like the phone ringing off the hook. Can you play this? Can you play that here, there, and everywhere? Mm-hmm. There was a struggle and to, to get my voice heard and doing different kinds of projects to make things happen. And I think part of the struggle made me a better person, more appreciative, more grateful, and a, and a, and a, and a more intense musician because Struggle is in music. And I think what he meant is if you don't struggle, you will play comfortably. You will play beautifully. You will play well. But the what the composer lived through 
it won't come out of your fingertips unless you go through some of that in life. Nobody wishes struggle upon people, but it happens. No, I don't know mm-hmm. how many people who are immune to it, but I think it, for me, it was a very important part of the journey and the struggles, the rejections, the mm-hmm. so many different things. You know, nothing really comes easy. If it does, I kind of compare it to Monopoly. If you get that hotel on Boardwalk and Park Place, game over. <laughs> where, do you, where do you go from there? Right, right. And I think it's always good not to own those properties <laughs> because it keeps you it keeps you wanting to better yourself. So, you know, yeah. I think part of what you're saying is true, but that's what was told to me. I didn't quite understand it. And I thought, why are you telling me this? Why do you want me to suffer? But right, right. I don't think he meant it that way. No, no. It, and, and how old were you at the time when this was happening, when you met him? Oh, 20, 87, 88, 26, 27. Right, so you were still relatively, I mean, you know, age is relative, no no pun intended, but mm-hmm. you were still relatively young, so to speak, I'm sure, and just oh, yes. in the infancy of your career. So, right, so oh, how yeah. would you interpret that? So I think that would be a normal exactly. interpretation, yeah, to go in that direction initially. Um, but then exactly. years later, be able to look back and say, hmm, you know what, wasn't a bad thing he said to me. Exactly. Um, okay. So, no, thank you for sharing that. So let's, uh, so talk about, Let's go back to when you were really young, and, and I like to do this in the beginning just to usually get a, a gauge of my guest personality. But with you, I think you're going to be the youngest ever individual as, a, you know, when you talk about what you experienced, unfortunately, at the earliest age yeah. of, of three when it was recognized that you weren't um, able to hear or speak. Tell us a little bit about, you know, how did your parents notice that? What was going on? Um, I can't imagine how distressful that was to them um, when when this was going on. And then take us through the corrective surgery that you had to give you yeah. the ability. Uh, sure. Uh, I wasn't speaking words that a normal two or three-year-old would have been. And my parents noticed that. And I was the youngest of four children. And oh, wow, okay. they took me to different doctors, and they all said, "Well, he's lazy, or he he'll grow out of it." You know, it's right. what did they know? They didn't do hearing tests at the hospital before you took the baby home like they do now. Okay. Uh, oh, that would have it would have come up then, but it didn't. That that was then, and then my parents took me to a, a physician who I think he faced me to a wall and called my name. I didn't answer, and he said your child's not lazy. He can't hear. And they were able to then go through the process and finally um, a surgical procedure. I'm sure they took out tonsils and whatever, but there was a blockage to the ears. The eardrums weren't vibrating enough. So they did myringotomy, which was inside with, with, I don't think I even had tubes. I don't remember what they did, but they went inside and cleared everything out so they can get the eardrums to work and I remember vaguely this uh, kind of a muffled sound that you were to mm-hmm. cup your ears and not hear clearly it was a very muffled sound of the world I could hear a little and I could probably over time figure out what words meant but I didn't speak much and 
I still to this day remember that experience of watching them do it. It was an operating room, a very bright white light operating room. And I was wow. floating on top, on fly, fl- floating on the top of the room by the ceiling, looking down at this little helpless body on his back, which oh. was me, with my mouth right. wide open. And there were two physicians standing over me doing whatever they had to do. This is what I remember. And I don't know if that was a dream state or an out-of-body state. I don't know what it was. But then I was able to hear after that, and I would gravitate to the piano. My oldest Mm -hmm. sister played piano, and my grandmother's sister played piano. So the piano was like a voice to me. People say, oh, is that why you chose to play the piano? I said, I don't think I chose anything. I think it chose me. But it was there. I guess we kind of choose each other. I started to play the piano just by ear for a few years, and then I had lessons. But my mom used to sing a lot. So I heard singing, and that was the music I heard. It was a very high-pitched, bell-like coloratura voice. I think she wanted to pursue a career in singing. But Aww. even though she did, it certainly r- rubbed off on me. So that yeah, was important. Yeah, what type of music was she singing? Do you remember what she was you know, singing when you were it, gravitating towards the piano? Yes, and... I do. I do. It, she would put on records of crooners and singers of the day, most all male singers pretty much, and she would hmm. sing the songs along with them. So she sang with them. It was an amazing, I used to hear, this is amazing to hear. And that is probably part of what fed into what I do, maybe how I interpret musical vocal lines i don't know and my father was in the police department working he was actually the youngest captain appointed to the nypd back in the 70s but wow. from him i worked from from my father i learned work ethic mm-hmm. he worked really hard he used to come home and study in the basement to take sergeant's test lieutenant test captain right test. i mean he retired at 49 from the nypd but i learned from him that work ethic and respecting people on all levels and never take anything for granted and work hard at what you do. So the combination was very unique for the business and career of being a musician and being a parent, of course. But yeah. uh, that was the childhood and taking lessons, you know, with teachers starting at age seven and working my way up to age 16, going to the teacher I would inevitably be with for eight years at the Juilliard School, which was a great experience. Yeah, and so, and real quick, yeah. just to just digress a tiny bit, um, I know that, again, music has been, you know, the focal point of your life, but as a as a young kid, were you ever interested in other things on the side? Did you play any sports? Were you a kid who enjoyed watching TV shows? If you did, what types of shows did you watch? Just to pull in some other yeah, potential. Yeah, sure, sure. Oh, that's great. Yeah. 60s television, it was the great. Right. It was great. I, I, I always say, gosh, why don't they just remake those shows? But I was not a sports person, really. Okay. I did some bowling in school, but I was not a sports person. <laughs> okay. I wasn't a sports person. I was, you know, what we have to realize, and I've learned to realize, and I didn't realize it until I was being interviewed in my late 20s when I was telling the story to um, the, the journalist from the local newspaper in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, I remember. And I told him I couldn't hear when I was young, and then I just plowed through the rest. He says, whoa, back up. And then I realized to embrace that part of my life because it was just my normal but it made a lot of sense as to why I was so inhibited as a child and why I was such an introvert 
and why I didn't speak much because I couldn't, you know, by the time you're three, if you're speaking, you are kind of who you are. I was not. So I found other ways to exist. I would listen more to um, music through speakers of recordings and record players, stereos, whatever they were called. So I would do that. And I would also use my eyes more to look behind me if I couldn't hear what was behind me. I used other senses. Mm-hmm. So that trailed through for another 15 years or so. And uh, I was not a sports person, but I liked writing. I liked writing scripts. I liked oh. writing TV okay. shows. Uh, I used to watch The Brady Bunch. I watched mm-hmm. Bewitched. I watched, you know, Good Times. I watched all the Saturday morning Sid and Marty Croft lineup. I loved all these shows because they made me smile. I would write my own episodes for the shows and i'll never oh, forget great. i'll never forget a quick story my cousin who's like my brother alan needleman alan worked for abc and worked his way up the ladder at the company but i once called him i said i wrote a script for the brady bunch where do i send it he got me the address <laughs> for paramount paramount out in la i said of course who knew to make a copy back then i had my original put it in an envelope mailed it out never heard oh, from them Okay. And about a year later, a year later, I'm watching the show, and it's the episode where they play ball in the house and it cracks the vase. And Mom always said, "Never play ball in the house." Right. I right. went running into the other room. I said, "Mom, they put my show on." I was. That was the episode of when the kids were misbehaving and broke stuff in the house. Oh my gosh! Really? I couldn't believe is- it. I actually, honestly. I got That's to know crazy. Eve Plum through social media. I wrote to her. I said, Eve, I, I have to tell you this story. So that was such a funky story because I'll never know if that script even exists in a vault. But I liked writing scripts. I liked writing stories about the future, original kind of screenplay things. Um uh, that's what I enjoyed. That was it was a no, very that's... simple, simple, unwanting existence. And I would play piano but Playing piano came very easily in a way physically. You know, the facility of it was uh, not difficult. I learned quickly, which was a detriment, you know, in a way, because when I went to my teacher, Adele Marcus, and at the age of 16, mm-hmm. uh, she was like the last chorale. You went to her, and that was, you know, she was the one you went to to really the, the finishing school. And she's like, we have to bring your musicianship, the way you – get sound from the piano up to the speed of how fast you're playing. You're playing too fast. So I had to work very hard to counteract that. It was a, it took a few years and it's a lifelong journey to be able to balance the physical and the emotional sound that you get. So, so that was right. the young years. I mean, that's what I love okay. doing and yeah. Simply. And again, it ties into what you do now. Cause again, composing is writing just in a different capacity, you mm-hmm. know? So yes, yes. yeah, no, are you just to just to pull in real quick now? Do you do you ever write any more types of script like things on the side? No, I actually wrote a short story back in two thousand three, and it's on my website. It's called Through the Wings, which means through okay. the wings of time, and also through the wings off stage. You know, to see the stage off the wings, and it was it's set in set starting on my would be one hundredth birthday, and goes back in time. And I would love one day for somebody to really take that, expand it, and turn it into a film. 
and have some futuristic, yeah, futuristic inventions that don't exist quite yet. Um, I don't know. That's just that was. I put yeah, it there. I put it out there. Who knows? One yeah, day maybe cool. some director or producer or somebody will pick it up and say, "Hey, we can make a movie out of this." It just it needs expansion, but it, it's kind of cool. Okay, that's cool. Yeah. Or a mini or a mini series. You know, now with Netflix and all these. Oh my gosh, streaming services, you know, there's a lot of areas (laughs) for things to go. Um, Very true. Real quick, just pull in, um, you said you were the youngest of four, and Mm. what do your other siblings do for a living? Are are any of them in the entertainment industry? No, they all just have their jobs. One uh, was a dental hygienist, one was an LPN nurse, and the other works for environmental services. And, you know, they all did very well for themselves that way in in their fields. So, uh, again, work ethic and just, you know, family values. And I think that's, you know, Mm -hmm. kind of the thread, the thread of existence for everybody. Okay. Okay. So, yeah, so let's now talk a little bit about, let's advance a tiny bit with the Juilliard School. Now, I'm not totally familiar with it. I mean, I'm assuming from what I, I was looking it up and stuff, they have all levels of schooling, right, from... High school, bachelor's, master's, do they have everything? Juilliard, is, uh, they have the pre-college division and the upper division. Upper division okay. in college. It's college, it's a bachelor's of music and right. master's, and then they have the DMA, Doctor of Musical Arts, and they may even have the AD uh, program. Uh, okay. And they have dance, and they have opera, and they have uh, music. They have the acting. It's it's an incredible place. I mean, right. the traditions. When I was there, it was quite different. Now it's uh, a bit more broad in scope, uh, meaning academically as well as in the focus of the entertainment that the student is studying. And I mean, from what I know, and I. Did some substitute teaching there, which I absolutely adore doing because the students mm-hmm. were, of course, wonderful. But what was interesting, uh, to go back and work with the students, it's kind of like giving back. It's like, you know, I got the best out of the school, and now I'm giving back. And I really enjoyed that dynamic. And um, and what was interesting is I note that they would have two teachers. So many of them would have two piano teachers that they would bounce off from one and the other and one week was one one was the other we didn't mm-hmm. have that i think it's a very healthy environment now when i was there it was healthy in the respect that all the students we kind of all felt like we were swimming in the same pool together and what was going to happen after we graduated was anyone's guess it was a different way of making a career back then you had one teacher you were devoted to and they okay. were devoted to you they came with a different tradition. My teacher studied with Joseph Levine, who was one of the greatest pianists and teachers at the school Mm -hmm. of the century. And his wife, Rosina Levine, carried that tradition on. And then her students became her assistants, became the faculty members of the faculty members when I was at Juilliard were the protégés of the Levines and of Isabella Vendereva. It's a totally different timeline of, of musical ancestry. So there were different traditions that they were doing. There was less new music going on, and if there was, you had the you know big pianists like Rubinstein and Horowitz and other people uh, championing these, the new music. And uh, that's changed quite a bit. Uh, so when I was there, that was the dynamic. And, you know, now... Uh, 
it's much broader, as I said. And what I've done over the years is uh, kind of utilize the fact that it's not just being in a piano studio and practicing the piano. You need to be friends with other people from other areas of interest. Mm-hmm. And I stayed close friends with the composers. And 20 years later, they became people who I went to to com- get new works commissioned for them to compose for me. And I raised all the money for them to write the music for me. So the, the seeds of those friendships started back at the school. Wow. So right. I think that that was important to me. I mean, studying at Juilliard, I, I mean, I will say uh, that my teacher was Adele Marcus, and she was already 70 when I got to her. And she was notoriously known as, oh, my God, if you study with her, how are you going to get through it? I mean, she was like an Olympic right. trainer. She was okay. very demanding, and she would be very difficult on you and very um, – uh, demanding to the point where you'd feel I'll never get this, you know. But then there'd be times that she'd say that was quite good. Uh, but I think that she wanted you to reach a certain standard that was almost superhuman. But look where she came from. She studied with Lee right. and with Arthur Schnabel. So the traditions of her and musical ancestry were on such a high level that she wanted to make sure she transcended those traditions to her students. At all costs. Definitely, definitely. And we'll talk a little bit about her, too, because I think there's there's an interesting thing I wanted to talk about that you mentioned before um, yeah. in, in some of the stuff I was reading on you. But just to di- digress, so you're 16 when you get in there. Were you going to a public or a private school prior to Juilliard? And just tell us a little bit about the application process and, you know, just, just yeah. give us a couple of highlights because I think that's interesting. I stayed in public school until I graduated high school like any normal person would do. My parents never treated me like, you know, like glass, like, oh, this is a prodigy, you know. Right. No. I mean, no. Okay. I mean, I, I grew up a very humble environment and very nurturing, but giving me the space to do what I had to do. And they never interfered with what my teachers were teaching me because they trusted them. But I was 16 when I auditioned for Adele Marcus. And uh, I had great teachers before, but like six or seven years with a teacher, Morton Estrin, who was a fabulous American pianist and teacher. And then I knew I wanted to see about maybe going to Juilliard after high school. So uh, I auditioned for her to play, and she was very respectful and just said, you know, you – you know, with my current teacher, we're not taking away anything. We're adding to what he's done. And Mm – so I studied with her and her assistants privately before auditioning for Juilliard like anybody else would in my senior year of high school. And they helped prepare me. Uh, and so I auditioned and did the application process. Everything was in writing back then, nothing online. I prepared everything I needed to play for the audition and hoped for the best because she would say, hey, there's no guarantees that you'll get in just because you're studying with me. And right. So that I, but I got in. Even back then, you didn't need an SAT to get into Juilliard. And my guidance counselor at the high school said, "Are you sure you're going to go there?" I said, "I, I hope so." She just because you have like to fall back on. You don't take the SAT; they require it at most of the other schools. I said, "Right, right." I just had a, I had a feel. You know what? In my mm-hmm. gut, I thought I'm going there. Mm-hmm. And I did, and I ended up going. I got in, which was nice, and made lots of new friends there. Many I still stay in touch with from over the years. That's great. 
And yeah. and Poland, because you like you said, you worked with the you know infamous Adele Marcus. Poland, a little bit about the time when you were at her apartment and you came across that um that piece of music, um yeah. that that only Joseph. And am I, is it Levine? Am I pronouncing it correctly? Levine, Joseph Levine, Joseph Levine. Levine. I okay. didn't know who he was. I was about nineteen. Mm-hmm. I was so green. I didn't even know who he was at that age, and I feel ignorant for that. But I was very, as I said, inhibited. She used to say, how do I get the music out of you? I don't even think she knew much about my history, unable to hear. And if I had okay. known more about that to tell her, it would have explained a lot of her frustrations with me. Right, but, right. Uh, you know, well, there was a lesson. And you know, you know, normally you'd play for her, and within a, a, a line or something, you'd hear her, you know, tapping because she was playing too fast or singing along to get you to sing the sound more. She was a big advocate about singing out loud when you practiced, and I will go into that. And, uh, I was playing something, and I finished the piece, which was shocking. And I thought, I sat there and I thought, well, either this was so bad and she wants to just never teach me again, or. I don't know what. And I just looked over and she said, you know, it's very interesting, dear, what you do. You remind me of Mr. Levine a lot. You look like him, uh, the way you hover over the keyboard, Mm -hmm. the way you arch your fingers, the way you just look, the way it sounds, it sounds like him. And I looked at her and I thought, wow. Thinking about that now, wow. Back then I was Mm -hmm. like, oh, okay, that's interesting. Oh, I remind you of your teacher. I mean, believe me, that was a (laughs) one-time experience because she was was very, very demanding. I mean, she would, to the point where she would really say, you know, don't play that piece, dear. Don't tell anybody you started it with me. That was her way, you know. But then right. that night wow. she would call and say, I want you to work on it. I think it'll be one of your good pieces, which it, things that's how things happened. But that was a moment, a very defining moment. And I, I kind of took it with a grain of salt. But I started to find music in her apartment that she had. And there was a piece that she um, had. It was an old 1910 copy of a piece, an etude uh, by Paul de Schletzer. Um, and it was a copy of music that was very rare. It was Opus 1, number 1. I showed it to her. She says, oh, yes, Mr. Levine played that. You should learn it, dear. So I did. I ended up recording it, and it's on the Grand Romance recording from, on the Steinway label. But it plunged me into a world I never thought I would explore, the world of Joseph Levine. Um, mm-hmm. And there were some images of him, and people would see them and say, you look like him. Well, I saw it. It's funny you say I mean, that. I did scrolling through your Facebook, and I came across it, and the, the side-by-side picture that yeah, you posted of you and him, and it is. It is eerie. And I'm saying in a good way. It's just very interesting. Yeah. That I think it's similar. in a good way. Yeah. And I would, listen to, I would listen to all the different pieces he would do and the double-note etudes and different things like that and how my teacher taught them to me and uh, how I teach my students. And I would listen to the recordings, and I would play mine. I listened to one of mine. I thought, this is this is spooky, but you know what? I don't. I'm not afraid of it. I don't know what it means. I embrace it, and I just be who mm-hmm. I am. I mean, who are we to know or say things that happen spiritually or? I don't know if there's a word. What word there could possibly be? We this who knows? But the fact that 
I went to study with her and that was her teacher and I reminded her of him and there's some physical resemblances or even the, the, the playing or the sound is similar. Who knows? It could mm-hmm. mean absolutely nothing and just sheer coincidence. But the way my yellow brick road has been laid out where I would go and study with her and play these pieces became part of, I guess, my my own way of playing and perhaps a legacy or carrying the tradition on in that way. Who knows? Or all of the above. Whatever it is, it is. I, I, I've learned not to go too deeply into things and just go with the flow. Right. Well, but again, like you said, yeah. it, it is very interesting, um, the, the similarities. It is. So, yeah. Yeah, it, yeah. It used to be spookier to me. I kind of feel like it's just normal now. <laughs> nice. Um, okay, so you completed, I'm assuming this was at Juilliard too, where you got your bachelor yes. in music and then the master's in piano? Yes. Yes. Okay. Okay, excellent. Um, so coming out of Juilliard, and just tell us a little bit about some of the jobs you had early in your career. And did you ever have any other jobs outside of music where you were just maybe doing something to pay the bills, so to speak? Because I always like to pull that in. You know, I've had musicians, mm-hmm. comedians, tell me some interesting yeah. stuff they did on the side. Yeah. Well, about 20 years ago, I actually took courses and got a real estate uh, licensed salesperson license and oh, nice. I mean, I've done that I, that's been fun I mean but I, the comparison between trying to sell real estate and to uh, create commissioning projects and raise money I mean it's a heck of a lot easier to sell a house than it was to create a project <laughs> for a piece of music that's not written yet uh, because the house is there uh, right. but I used to play for ballet classes I used to do a lot of dance uh, accompanying piano accompanying for the classes and I remember meeting Leonard Bernstein once, and he mentioned the name Andrea Glevsky, one of the great ballet masters. And I said to him, I knew his wife because I played for the Andrea Glevsky School of Ballet. And it taught me about phrasing, and it taught me about, you know, how to shape, make music like dance. And he says, well, (laughs) this is Leonard Bernstein saying this. I used to get a dollar an hour, and they fired me because I couldn't play eight measures straight, four, four time. I'd throw my rhythms in, threw off the dancers, and they couldn't handle it, so they fired me. <laughs> but, no, I mean, I basically, the beginning, coming out of Juilliard was, you know, the back then, even in the, in the 1980s, the process was pretty much like you go to school, you enter competitions, you try to win them, you get concerts, try to get a manager, and then try to get a career going. But, you know, that isn't always the uh, the easy way. And, you know, you, you, of course, you go to competitions, you try to get concerts. I have to say, looking back now, admittedly, I did things very unorthodox. And I would buy a book called Musical America, which was a once-a-year big thick book with all of the listings of all the orchestras and their conductors, all the recital presenters, all the managers, okay. or everything. And I would go to the orchestra section and state by state, they'd list the orchestras and who their conductors were and phone numbers. I would actually call the area code and five, 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 one, two, one, two. That was the way you did it. And mm-hmm. I'd call and try to find the home phone numbers for all the conductors. I mean, that's how I got to know them. Right. And many of Good those developed into wonderful friendships. I mean, I really, you know, I had him. I, I graduated Juilliard. Um, I was fortunate to receive a um, letter from Leonard Bernstein to the acting 
president at the Juilliard School, who was Gideon Waldrop, and he recommended me for a recital debut through the auspices of what had been the William Petrick Piano Debut Award. So I received that in 1986 at Juilliard. Forever grateful for that. Uh, that was in April of 86. I can't believe 36 years. And my piano technician knew the chief of the New York Times, the music critic, Donald Hanahan, Donald Hanahan. And I didn't know he was there. He came to my recital and reviewed it. And the review came out the next morning, which was good. And I met with a management who Gideon Waltrip knew. And I went with the management. And then a year later, uh, the manager I had went elsewhere. And then he said to me, you should come with me. I brought you to the office. I went with him. And then I went back to the other management. I mean, I have been through management because it's been difficult to just stay in one place and help see it sail through. Okay. So I've learned, I mean, it's just, honestly, there's just only so much any agent or manager can do a given day. And I knew that. I never expected anybody to do it all for me. I wasn't that kind of person. I don't like asking people to do anything for me. I feel kind of like, They'll be like, don't they? Can't you do that yourself? So that's right. when I started. I can empathize people. with that. Did, right. Yeah, I cold yeah. called. I did very unorthodox things. We didn't have mm-hmm. Facebook or Instagram to follow people or friend people. That's how I did it. My social media was cold calling, mm-hmm. and then I decided by meeting composers and uh, playing their new music for competitions or concerts. I thought I kind of like this. And that's when I started to create the first internet concert and the first consortium of orchestras to commission new music. It's just constantly working around the the box. Mm -hmm. And that was my post-Juilliard experience was I did enter competitions and I won a couple, but you know, you can win competitions and get some concerts from it, but that does, it's fantastic. It's great to have that honor and be recognized. But it's one thing to launch a ship, it's another to make a sail. And the right. business of music is not an easy journey. Right, so right. I learned it now, early on. What's that you said? I learned it early on and yeah, tried to find ways to, you know, to make myself feel felt. I thought it would happen more magically, but I remember my teacher was Adele saying to somebody, who was a wonderful uh, journalist and critic uh, and juror of competition. She said, Jeffrey plays really well, but he has to make himself feel felt. She knew it wouldn't be easy uh, because it just isn't an easy career to establish, even if you win competitions. Right. So, right. Well, again, congratulations on, on all of what you've just talked about in terms of, we'll get into in a little bit, talking about your, um, First classical live streams, and then bringing the you know project with the twenty seven orchestras. I can't even wrap my head around that piece. You'll have to talk a little bit about that. <laughs> so yeah, let's, I will. let's do this and just give you a little, give us a little break for a minute because we want to check out one of your pieces today. Um, okay. Tell us a little bit about the reflections of freedom and ode to John Fitzgerald Kennedy um, that we're going to yes. feature today. I mean, it's 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 
brilliant. It's beautiful. Um, I really enjoyed listening to it. And, and it's funny because, you know, you're the first person that I've had on that's been, you know, a p- pianist and a composer. Most of the people I've interviewed are, you know, a lot of rock bands and, and things like that. Cause that's just, you know, I, I like that type of music, rock, new metal, things like that. So yeah, it's definitely great to have someone in your field on today. Um, so oh, tell us a little bit about the piece when you wrote it sure. and the inspiration behind it. And then we'll check it out. Sure. I'll tell you, during the pandemic, I really felt like closed in. And my wife said to me, she was a pianist. She actually studied at Brooklyn College, and she teaches. And okay. she said to me, why don't you go write music? I said, nah, I can't do that. I always say no every time she asks me to do something. <laughs> it's a good idea. I always say no. <laughs> uh, and, but I did. And I looked at the blank paper, and I wrote these pieces of you know, Waltzes of Hope in March of 2020. After Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed, she says, why don't you go write something? I just didn't know what to do. So I thought, well, how about her names? So I took her names, RBG, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and her nickname, Kiki, and I wrote the piece, Reflection of Justice. And Mm -hmm. uh, I took the musical alphabet from A to G, and then when the the next octave scale would start with A again, I just made it H, and then H-I-J-K-L-M-N. And I went all the way up the piano scales using the alphabet as we know it straight through. So... Uh, after the Ginsburg wow. piece was written, uh, and then I was able to get invited to perform it, in July of 2021, last year, uh, I wrote actually the Reflection of Equality for Martin Luther King first. Okay. Uh, so I wanted to write another piece. And then I thought, well, why don't I make this a three-piece set and maybe a piano concerto? Three Reflections. I didn't know mm-hmm. who the third one should be, and so my wife said, what about Kennedy? I said, that's freedom. All right, Reflection of Freedom, JFK. I wrote that. But in the Ginsburg piece, I only quote an American hymn once for one phrase from Star Spangled Banner with the, all of her names around it. In the equality for Martin Luther King, I do the same thing. You hear the first three tones are MLK, then Martin, then Luther, then King, and then... Mm. I put in Amazing Grace, and I weave all of his names around that. For freedom, the first notes you'll hear are JFK, JFK, and then da-da-da, faster, the same JFK, JFK, JFK. Then you hear J-O-H-N, and then you hear Fitzgerald spelled out with the musical alphabet, and then Kennedy. And then they develop a bit to a big climax, and then I bring in America the Beautiful, and then I weave his names around that. So that's how that goes. The piano concerto will be JFK, RBG, and MLK in that order. Okay. Okay. So, no, thank you. I mean, it is, yeah, and I I love the beginning of it just in terms of the progression and what you're doing with it. So, all right, so let's do that. I'll put you on hold. We're going to check it out, and then we'll come back after that to continue. All right? Excellent. Sure. Okay. All right, everyone. Again, you are listening to the award-winning pianist and composer, Jeffrey Beagle. We're going to check out his um, ode to John F. Kennedy right now, and uh, we'll be back in a moment.
All right, everyone. Welcome back to the Carrie Edelman Show again. That was Jeffrey Beagle's Reflections of Freedom and Ode to John Fitzgerald Kennedy. And it is absolutely brilliant. And uh, what a beautiful piece. Let's bring him back on. Thank you so much. Thank you okay. so much. That's so You're sweet. welcome. No, it is fantastic. Yeah. Great. Yeah, it's really interesting. Great. I have to I have to thank a couple of people also because not, I wrote the piano piece, but you know, part of teaching, I think I learned that from Adele Marcus, is that it's not just about playing the piano by yourself somewhere. It's it's really branching out. And uh, in my own studio at Brooklyn College, where I have wonderful students, uh, and it's hard to know what direction they're all going. Some have a certain fixed direction, and you don't want to alter that because they need mm-hmm. to find that direction. But once it becomes apparent what they're doing and they're sharing what they're doing, one of the students was Harrison Sheckler, who's now uh, doing a DMA, Doctor of Musical Arts at um, University of Arizona in Tucson. He's teaching and doing everything. He did a lot of arranging of music and putting things together during the pandemic. That was, I mean, if you go to his YouTube channel Harrison Sheckler and see okay. you'll never walk alone it had like over a million hits within a month wow he is okay. so good at hearing orchestra so I said would you like to orchestrate my pieces and he did the Ginsburg piece that I did in Dallas and he said yes and my other student awesome. who's an undergrad he does audio work that with using logic pro x you know this mm-hmm. fabulous software I can't do it I said can you actually create a demo for this he says yes and I said to these guys, you know, I know this is not typical piano lesson stuff, but I can't afford to pay you to do this, especially when we're out of work. I'll put right. your names on everything. And in the documentary they did in Dallas, their names are on there. So, you know, the, just from the standpoint of visibility and getting to put it on their, uh, in their yeah, CVs great. and use it for future mm-hmm. work. But we put it together and they did. I'm really indebted to them for doing this fabulous job of orchestrating Harrison's working on the JFK now and the MLK we did already as a video on YouTube for that from last month and once we have the score done my student Chi Chen is going to make an audio recording of it using this nearly human I mean it's amazing how human the sound is using technology uh, just leave it to the kids I mean, it, it, just yeah brilliant. no it's really crazy brilliant. it's great They're brilliant. no it's yeah, and it's great, like you said, to have all these these amazing people that you can also collaborate with, and and they can offer you something that maybe, like you said, you're not up to par with, or it's just something that you don't regularly yeah. do. So that's really cool. Yeah, it's just yeah. bigger than ourselves. I think it's really nice to do that. Mhm. Definitely. Um, while we're talking about music, real quick, just give a give some um, highlights of some of the albums you have. I mean, I was looking online, oh. and I saw you have at least. Uh, I don't know, four or five albums, a couple of EPs. So, yeah, just, just throw those out there to plug them where people can find them if they want to yeah. uh, get some new, sure. purchase some of your music. I think even on the website, there's links on my website to go and buy the recordings. I think the first commercial recording I did was, uh, it's now on the Naxos label, started on one of their smaller labels, Marco Polo. And it's the 25 Preludes by Cesar Cui, C-U-I. And... Uh, the owner of Naxos, Klaus Heyman, invited me to do that, which I thought was great. And that was my first recording. And after that, I'd done a, a bunch of different recordings for Naxos. That, you know, it's a tough company to to record for because a lot of the music that they put out has been recorded. So he would always say, 
what what have don't we have that you have? So I did uh, Vivaldi Four Seasons, my solo piano version, and uh, with two other works by Vivaldi, the Lute Concerto and the Mandolin Concerto, written for piano solo by one of my childhood mm-hmm. friends, Andrew Gentile, who's a brilliant arranger. He did the sleigh ride for the Christmas album for Steinway. And wow. um, it's a different recordings. I mean, there's a lot of new music. I did all 19 Mozart sonatas uh, mm-hmm. with the repeats. In all the repeats, I would do different Mozartian embellishments in the way I think Mozart would have based on what he's written out without repeats. Uh, I did a Bach recording for this first Steinway recording, a Christmas album for them, and a tribute to the Joseph Levines of the world, the Grand Romance. Uh, Kenneth Fuchs's piano concerto, Spiritualist, this is with Naxos, um, recorded with Joanne Folletta conducting London Symphony. That Actually, that recording is the one that uh, got the Grammy in 2019 or 2018, I think it was 2019. Yeah. And, Congratulations um, with that. That was excellent. And then awesome. I released my own solo, uh, my own label, Naturally Sharp, The Pianist's Journey, which is almost four hours of piano music, of all the music I've loved my whole life. And also the internet concert I did in 97 is on that label. It was the actual digital recordings taken simultaneously during the first live classical live stream. And so that's there. And the Rhapsody in Blue, new critical edition, uh, recorded with Bruce Kiesling conducting Adrian Symphony, Lucas Richmond conducting his own piano concerto uh, called In Truth with the Pittsburgh Symphony, uh, Bill Bolcom's uh, Prometheus with Pacific Sym- Symphony and Chorale, Carl, Carl St. Clair conducting. I, I mean, there's been so wow. many nice collaborations of new yeah. music. Old music, Chopin, Mozart, and Bach, and there's more I'd like to do. It's just not enough time to do it all. <laughs> well, well, you're doing an excellent job at trying to get it all we done. Try. So we try. Yeah, no, no, that's awesome. So yeah, people can go definitely uh, and go to your website too. Of course, JeffreyBeagle.com. Check out sure. all the information you have up there. You got so much great stuff. Um, oh, okay, so you. again, I would need numerous interviews to get into you know every aspect yeah. of your career, but let's let's at least go through some of the highlights. Um, in 97, sure. as, as you had briefly mentioned earlier, you created the first classical live streams, and this was in yes. New York Steinway Hall. Yes. Now, this is interesting because, you know, when I reflect back to 97, I mean, that's kind of around the – I'm trying to think, 90s. Yeah, it's kind of around the time that the Internet was really starting, I, you know, from what I recall, to get some more momentum. So, yeah. you know, tell us a little bit about – how you did that, especially with, you know, with the fact that it was a whole new medium coming out there and, and came up with this idea. Well, basically, I thought of the 1950s when black and white television sets were uh, far and few between. I wasn't around then. I was born in 61. But I do remember hearing stories, you know, so-and-so's got a new TV in apartment 3A, you know, and they would all watch <laughs> I Love Lucy and hover around that TV. And I thought, well, gee, that would be interesting to be able to take a computer monitor and turn that into a modern television in someone's house and bring the classical music right into someone's home. And mm-hmm. I approached the director of the artist's department, concert and artists at Steinway, Peter Goodrich. I said, hey, would you be open to us doing the first live stream classical concert? Uh, that's a video also. Uh, there had been a couple of audios. Uh, there was an audio uh, stream from the Pittsburgh Symphony back in, pretty sure it was Pittsburgh, 
before that, I didn't know until I did some research, but there were no videos until then, not, no, no classical audio-video concert. Okay. Uh, there were a couple of attempts with a couple of rock groups and things, but very little. I didn't even find much of it. There wasn't much. People weren't doing it yet. And uh, he said, sure. So I raised the money and uh, hired a company to come from Florida and create it. And we did the first one in July, I think it was July 8th, maybe, of 97. There was a three-hour delay. Mind you, they were doing oh, high speed. Most people had dial-up. Right. Three-hour delay. They came back three weeks later on July 25th. It was early in the morning before Steinway opened, and we did an hour separate program. And it worked. My kid got uh, the, the the stream in his school library, which was on a high speed. So it worked. At least I could say it worked nice. on time. <laughs> right, <laughs> and right. then I was invited to do one in Europe in Amsterdam by another company that was doing streaming. And then the rest was history. And everything started to just open up as technology advanced. So did that. Right. Um, and, and then also bringing, you know, to fruition that the first project of 27 orchestras um, into yeah. a millennium project to commission new music. Mm-hmm. Again, just educate me because, I, like I said, I just can't. It just sounds so massive yeah. um, of a project to do. Yeah. Tell us a little bit yeah. about that and, and how you came up again with that idea and, and the process to do that. Well, I had experiences learning new music by living composers in the 1980s. You had, a, like, for competitions, you had to learn a new work mm-hmm. that was commissioned for a composer to write something for all the uh, semifinalists or finalists to learn and play. And it was a good way to get new music out there, actually. They still do it. And in the 90s, I was able to meet Lalo Schifrin. Uh, incredible composer who wrote so many TV shows and movies uh, themes. And he's written big orchestral works, and he had written a concerto that the Steinway Foundation had commissioned him to write. And that was premiered in 91, I think. And it was called The Americas. It was about the discovery of America by Columbus. It was like a uh, 500th anniversary and I learned it and then I recorded it and I met Lalo and he conducted the concert for the recording and it was so interesting to me to work with a living composer you can ask them questions I can't call Beethoven so <laughs> it was really it, it meant a lot to me to meet composers along the way I was about 12 years old and the teacher I had at the time was Morton Estrin, as I said earlier, who took me to play a piece by Meyer Kupferman, wonderful American composer, because I'll never okay. forget a lesson I went to with Morty. He's, I was 12 years old. He says, I just got this piece, 1973. I don't have time to learn it. Here, you learn it. <laughs> and I learned it, and I played it for the composer. So wow. building on this, like, 25 years of playing music by composers and playing it for them, I decided in like late 1998 to celebrate the millennium with something special. Let's get as many orchestras as possible to co-commission a new work by a great American composer. Mm-hmm. And I chose Ellen Tafes Willick, who was the first Pulitzer Prize, first female composer to win a Pulitzer Prize in music. Um, and that's not why I selected her. I selected her because her music was very well respected and loved by many conductors and orchestras. And I even knew then that I needed to get the attention of the conductors and the orchestras to make a thing like that happen. So okay. I approached her and it was through actually Lucas Foss, the composer pianist who knew her and uh, sent me to her. 
And she says, yeah, that sounds exciting. You know, send me some of your recordings so I know how and what you I would write for you. You know, she she's a custom composer. She writes for the person right. that she's writing the piece for, which is really good. Not just like I'm writing this and for whoever. She writes it tailored to the person who's going to premiere it, which is incredible. And we've done three projects together. And uh, I began the process of kind of door-to-door salesmen calling people who I thought could co- could help you know fund the project private donors and then all the orchestras and that was a task but um I had a, many orchestras signed up for the project and okay. it was in early 99 I was playing a recital at the uh, Xavier University in Cincinnati, and I went the night before to one of the Cincinnati Symphony concerts, and I went backstage and met a few of the people and the conductor. And uh, you see how things, like I say, the yellow brick road—you yeah. never know what brick, what the brick is going to be. Mm-hmm. The manager of the orchestra, and I'll never forget. Well, he was artistic administrator, I think, or he was managing the orchestra. So Jeff Alexander, who's gone on to in Chicago Symphony now, wonderful, wonderful person. He said, oh, you want to go out with us? I said, really? Yeah, sure. So I went with them after the concert with the conductor who did a fantastic performance, uh, Alexander Lazarev. And so Jeff said to me, so what do you have coming up? And I was like, well, I'm working on a a Linz Willick project and we -hmm. don't have the premiere yet. And he says, well, you know, we're doing her violin concerto. I said, yeah, I know that. I saw that. It was a lineup for next season. He says, but that's the second performance. We don't have the premiere. I said, I, I saw. So he says, you know, send me some information. So I emailed him some information. And I waited a few weeks and called him. He says, we'd be interested, but only if it's the premiere. I said, that's easy. It's yours. <laughs> so it turned out wow. that they we did the world premiere of the Millennium Fantasy in September of 2020, and that kicked off. You see, having the premiere orchestra helps because then you could build the project from there. So I was able to build the consortium of all the co-commissioners to pay her fee. So I basically became a fundraiser for these projects. I wow. don't draw a fee for doing it, except I, you know, you get played, you get paid like you're playing anything. But right. it's it just the right. labor of love. And I just felt it was, that was part of my yellow brick road. I had to do this. And I did that. And as soon as I was finished with that, I was ready to do the next and uh, kept building on these projects. And each one of them has its own story. And uh one of them with one of my Juilliard friends, Lowell Lieberman, his third piano concerto, I was able to bring an orchestra in Europe into the project. And then in Canada and other, not just American orchestras. So I wanted to broaden it out a bit. So there's been a, I, I would take it's an wonderful. hour to go through each wow. one. They're just, it's been a wonderful journey. I have four premieres this year of new works that have been pushed through the pandemic. And one of them comes up in May. It's Daniel Pertu's Planet's Odyssey, which is a project I've had in mind for years to take make a new planets for the 21st century, not like Holst's planets, but a new okay. one. And okay. he takes the pianist through the journey. And then in July is Jim Stevenson's Piano Concerto, uh, and then uh, an Iranian composer, Fahad Pupel's Legend of uh, Bijan and Mania with piano, orchestra, and chorus with the Windsor Symphony in Canada. And then a, a Thanksgiving concerto by Christopher Marshall with Space Coast Symphony in Florida. And K 
Canton Symphony is doing the Planets, and the New Hampshire Music Festival is doing Jim Stevenson's Concerto, which is beautiful. And then working on a Peter Boyer Rhapsody in Red, White, and Blue for 23-24. And Adolphus Hale Stork is going to compose a concerto for me for 24-25. So we just keep working Yeah, you got a lot in the works. That's great. Oh, my trying gosh. Trying to keep them all going. It's it's important. And then all these pieces mm-hmm. will be in the repertoire, which I think is nice. No, definitely. Congratulations on all that. Like I said, it's just, it's fascinating. Just again, all the time and the effort and, and what you put into these projects. Well, so it's fun. It's fun also at the same time. It's a challenge. And what's nice about new music is it's just you make a mistake. Nobody really knows it. <laughs> so, right. That kind of <laughs> there you go. There. Right. I know it. There you go. But, <laughs> that's a, that's a, that's a good point too. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah, again, just your your career is just so, again, as I said, just rich and, you know, diverse. And you, you bring so many different pieces to the table. So it's wonderful. Oh, Let's um, bring in a little bit how you met, I think, because this would be a, an interesting tie-in. You know, how you met your wife, because my understanding is her father-in-law went to um, high school with the um, former, I mean, with the late, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Supreme Justice, Court yeah, Justice. Yeah, yeah tell yes, us a little bit right. about yeah. how you met her and a little bit about that background because I think that'll be interesting. And then we'll talk about the um, the piece and uh, what you put together sure. for, uh, for Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Sure. Uh, I had this is an interesting story. 1978, no, 77. Uh, I my grandmother's cousin was a. Uh, Doctor of Musicology and uh, Shankarian Analysis. She actually taught at Brooklyn College, and she went to Columbia okay. and Juilliard. She was brilliant, and she knew at Brooklyn College the pianist Augustin Anievis, who was one of Adele Marcus's students. And he won the Queen Elizabeth competition in Brussels, eleven trade. He made recordings. He had a huge career, and she asked him if he would listen to me play. So I played for him. And I was 16, and he said, I want you to play for my teacher, Adele Marcus, at Juilliard. I think you should maybe look into that. So I, we, we contacted her, and I played for her in 1977, and she took me on as her student. I was still a sophomore in high school. My wife went to Brooklyn College in 1978. She had skipped seventh grade, so she graduated early. She went to Brooklyn College and became Gus Agnavis' student in 1978, the year after I played for him. Okay. If he, taken me as, if he took me as a student and I went to Brooklyn College, I would have met her 10 years before we met oh, wow. in 1988. Okay. So I met her because my father, after he retired from the New York Police Department, uh, he became director of security at a hospital in Long Island, which is the Long Island Jewish Hillside Medical Center at the time. It's now one of the mm-hmm. big hospitals in what they call Northwell system. And one of the secretaries there knew a lady who knew people who may have been involved in music or whatever. So I called her and I met her. She says, I know somebody. Because it's hard to find somebody who understands what you do in music. Mm -hmm. I have a friend and she's from Brooklyn. And I want you to call her because she might like to meet you because I wanted to see, you know, I didn't want to just go out with anybody everywhere. You know, it's very hard to find somebody who gets the music profession because you're away a lot. You're home a lot. You're practicing odd hours. It's a strange life. And (laughs) 
I and I called her, which is strange because she had a dog named Snoopy, and the dog was a beagle, and the beagle had passed away the week before I called her. Aw, okay. And apparently, this lady who I met told Sharon this, and she says, "You you are kidding me," because she said my last name was Beagle. And so we went out, we met, and then you know a few months would go by, we went out again, and that's how we met, and that's how the rest is history. Okay, okay, nice. So Thank we actually met like that. 10 years later, then we went, yeah, it's an unusual story. But yeah. She, knew, she understood, she's a fabulous pianist. She, you know, if she wanted to go, you know, practice now and play more, she could probably do it. But she teaches wonderfully. She's, she's like, the kids love her. And... Uh, and she listens to me, and she helps guide me with things that I'm not aware of. I mean, I'm more of the the musician type, but I've learned a lot about the business of it through her. She's very good with that. And mm-hmm. um, and we have two wonderful kids. They're 29 and 25. One's a surgical resident, and the other is an attorney slash IT slash percussionist <laughs> and, okay. and medical you know, physicist. She's like, my kids them. are like... Ay, ay, ay. <laughs> I, yeah. I can't keep well, up with them. <laughs> wow. Yeah, yeah. I saw in yeah. some stuff that I read that is it Jeffrey, the one that does some stuff with you, comp- composition with you? Evan. Evan. Uh, no, oh, Craig. Evan, I'm sorry. Craig. I don't know why oh, that's a story. After 9 11. Wrong name for the, yeah, Craig, for the uh, Craig, composer. Yeah. Yeah. Craig's the older one. He's the, he's the surgeon. But he played cello and piano, and he's an artist. And he came home one day after 9 11 and started playing the piano. I said, where'd you, what is that? He says, I don't know, I'm just making it up. I wrote it down. We ended up turning that into a composition for choir called The World in Our Hands. And wow. I took exactly what he wrote and put it in there and I I added the verses to it. Um, Evan is the percussionist who's a lawyer and IT specialist. Mm-hmm. And uh, We've done work together. We did actually Ellen's Willick's Shadows for piano, orchestra, and percussion. Uh, so we performed together also called Bowling Suites for, for uh, flute and jazz piano. So, yeah, we, we, we've jammed a little bit. Uh, but That's they're, great. They're following totally other career paths, much more secure career paths than <laughs> mine, both of them, obviously. Both of them have a creative aspect, too, you know, in terms yeah, of... Yeah, I think so. Like you said, Craig does. You said he's an artist too, and and Jeffrey with yeah. the um, Evan, yeah. right? That's great. Um, yeah, so, yeah. Okay. So as we were talking about, thank you for sharing that. As we were talking about, yeah, you know, sure. meeting your wife um, and how her father-in-law went to school with yeah. um, with Bader Ginsburg. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about the reflection of justice and ode um, that you wrote to yes. the former Supreme Court justice. Yeah. Well. I just remember Sharon's father uh, was an attorney in Brooklyn, and he used to say, "Oh, I went to Madison. I went to school with Ruth, with with Kiki Bader. That's what he would call her. And they called her Kiki Bader. Where would the Kiki came <laughs> from? Is because uh, her sister called her Kiki because she used to kick when she was a little kid, and so he knew her there. Uh, I don't know if they went out or anything. I think he said they went out a couple of times. I don't know, but." Uh, <laughs> They he they knew her, and you know he had he was ninety and passed in on June eighteenth last uh, in um, twenty twenty. Oh, Ruth passed on September eighteenth, three months to the day later in twenty twenty, mm-hmm. and I just felt this weird kind of connection. 
I don't know if the two of them are up there in heaven and they just got me to write that piece. Who knows? But <laughs> right. for some reason, I wrote this piece and uh, it ended up being orchestrated, as I said, by my student Harrison so beautifully. <laughs> and that ended up getting premiered with the Dallas Symphony Orchestra. So who knows how stars align? But I just def- I definitely felt this spiritual energy coming mm-hmm. from the both of them, from my father-in-law and from uh, Ginsburg. Right. I do get those weird feelings sometimes. Like I I created a project for the Peanuts Concerto that Dick Tunney composed, and I felt that energy from my father because he loved Peanuts. He loved Snoopy and all the characters. Aww. That was like his favorite thing. And I felt that energy propel me to get that done. And I had to work very hard with the... Um, the companies, the Peanuts Worldwide LLC and uh, Lee Mendelssohn Film Productions, who owned the rights to all the music. So there wow. was a multifaceted uh, project to get done there, and it, it worked. But I felt the spiritual energy of my father in that one. Um, so what can I say? We we do things we do sometimes for reasons we can't totally comprehend sure. or put into words, you know. Yeah, but and again too. I mean, like you said, just just whatever spiritual energy you feel and the connection to these, you know, these people, these loved ones, these people who mean something yeah. to you in your life. Yes. Um, plus, yes. with the with the talent and the skill you have, I mean, you did, then you bring something great into the world. Um, to we try. you know, we try. not just for you, but to represent them and and what they did. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Oh, it's because yeah. it's also I feel like um, split into multiple personalities where it's like even students of Adele Marcus will say, I still hear her voice saying what to do. <laughs> you know, it was a very strong voice, but there's that, that part of me that I want to reflect and pay homage to the Joseph Levine traditions through mm-hmm. my playing or my teacher's traditions, but also very much steeped in what has to be done for the future. I think is very important uh, I mean, old new pieces become old pieces, <laughs> and right. and I, I I like being part of the evolution of that. I think it's important, at least for me, it is. It, it, it isn't it isn't everybody's fit, and it's certainly not easy. But I, I try to find it enjoyable too. It gets frustrating at times waiting to hear back from orchestras or conductors if they want to be part of the projects or sure. that's. Not easy, not easy, not easy. Sometimes in a crunch where you have to raise money to complete a project, none of it is easy. There's there's Isaac Stern saying you have to struggle. <laughs> well, I did. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. I have, and I'm sure not the end of that. But it's anything worthwhile doesn't come without some some of that, I think. No, and, and you've been able to prove that you can get it done. Right, it might not be... Timing not everything, but that what you need, right? Maybe not everything. And then, yeah, not everything. There's been projects and there's been different inquiries from composers and all, and it's very hard. I, I mean, it's hard to say no, but it's also hard to to know certain things aren't going to happen, and you just have to back it off. There's nothing you can do. You can't force it. Right. You can't force it. I've right. learned that over the years too. <laughs> I've learned a lot in 40 years. 
Definitely, definitely. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, again, just the accomplishments and, and what you've done is just outstanding. It's outstanding. And again, as I said, it's just an absolute honor to have you on today and, and do this in-depth interview with you. Um, well, thank you. Yeah. So what else, you know, just uh, bring in a couple of other things you want to share um, and also any interest mm-hmm. you have outside of of music and, and playing and composing and arranging. Um, I could see from the comment you recently made on my Facebook page, you appear to be a Seinfeld fan. Am I accurate oh, with God, that? Yes. <laughs> yes. You know, it's so, I, uh, when, when it, when Seinfeld was on initially, I didn't follow it as much. Me too. In the beginning. Now I find I, myself hysterical. Evidence. I feel like I'm watching reruns of I love Lucy. I mean, that's the generation now. And I, I find it, I, I think I, I appreciate their art of what they were able to do so much more now than I did would have back then. And okay. I, I, I think they're, they're incredible. I um, actually wrote something called The Twelve Days of Festivus. <laughs> and I think I, I saved it somewhere. I sh- oh, I really should. I'll, I'll put it on that. I have to go back and find that comment because I don't remember – uh, where it was on your oh it's on where well, you had a Seinfeld um, yeah yeah tribute, yeah no I had uh, I was, post. I was someone that, yeah I was wishing people I was wishing everyone a happy holiday and it was like a, yeah, a Seinfeld yeah. And then, yeah you posted under that I think, <laughs> I think it's great I mean I, I I don't know them I don't know any of them um, uh, I I went to school with I think it was um, uh, Jason Alexander's wife I think came from the same town oh, as me and she's a she's She's an incredible artist, incredible wow. artist. I love watching her. There's so much life in her. I mean, it's such an, a unique, the people, that's the way she makes people look. It's incredible. Um, but I don't know any any of the other people, of course, on the show, except through following on Instagram and sure. Cheryl Hines is on there. She's, she's Her posts are great. <laughs> I like what I like their posts. I really do like what they share. You know, 40 years ago, we didn't have this. You know, there was me sitting there with a, a musical America book, cold calling people, and here you can connect to people. I think it's wonderful. Definitely. It's just, yeah. great. and I think it's important. It's a good. It's important. You know, back then in the day, there were walls you couldn't break through to get to people. They were very mm-hmm. guarded, and technology and social media has really broken down those walls for the most part. Many still stay very guarded. Mm-hmm. but not as much as they even were five years ago. Right. right. I think people enjoy connecting to people. It's important. And we have that of access to do so within reason. You know, I, I don't want to be a, you know, a nudge. Right. Right. <laughs> to people. Exactly. But, but you, but you could make yourself feel felt to people and show them that you care about what they're doing. And in Definitely. turn, they do too. And I think that's what, gets us to do things and collaborate together to just make the world a better place through interacting with each other in the ways that we can. I think that's, especially these days, it's it's important because technology has its downfalls too. You know, TMI, too much information. Sure. Too yeah. much. Too much is not good either. Anything to any extreme yeah. is not good. But it's great that we can connect. We wouldn't be doing this show if we didn't have technology. We wouldn't exactly. know each other. Yeah. Yeah, and that's that's one of the things that I find just yeah amazing about the technology, and like you said, the ability to maybe break down a couple of those walls—not all of them, you know, just like you. Exactly. I have my 
my climb and my struggles and, you know, my yeah. disappointments. But then I reframe it and I say, hey, but look at A, B, C, D, and E you got on your show. You know, so. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, if, if you're interested, I would recommend, and I, I could tell you more off the air, there is an amazing book that was written on the history of Seinfeld called Seinfeldia. It, yes. you would, if you are a fan of Seinfeld, it's an easy read. You would love it. It's all these little golden nuggets and nooks and crannies of the storylines and where they came. It is just how it got started, and it was supposed to be nothing. Yeah. I mean, it literally wow. was a show that was never even going to make it past the first five episodes of the pilot. Yeah. Wow. Well, to. you know, this is it, they had their struggles, too. Lucille oh Ball, Lucy had struggled. Don't ask what she went through. She and Desi tried to do something with CBS, and CBS turned them away and said, you go make a pilot and bring it to us. And they got nowhere until they saw it was going to be successful, and then he, they came up with the idea of the repeats, the reruns, and the multiple mm-hmm. camera angles. I mean, he was, he was no slouch, Desi Arnaz. He was brilliant, and she wow. was brilliant. She was one of the great comedians. But they helped each other. Carol Burnett got a break. Lucy mm-hmm. helped her. She got her. You know, everybody worked together back then. They were very humble. I met Lucy. We, Sharon and I went to her house in um, October or November of something of 88. I got to know her uh, through a publicist who knew her best friend. Uh, We spent two hours with her and I played for her. I mean, it was just, and she taught me a wonderful lesson. She said, you just go out on stage and play. I said, kind (laughs) of. She's like, oh gosh, we we, we would never do that. Well, I, I can't understand that. She says, we would go out and meet the audience and talk to them and warm up before we would go do our, do the shoot. And she said, you should talk to them first if you can. I said, well, it's hard in a very big place, but in some places I probably can. And mm-hmm. I did that. And I talked about the music and I called her office and said, please tell Lucy she was right. It's incredible. Opened a whole new world to how to you know, present a concert. So uh, she really yeah. set the stage for the future of sitcoms, there's no doubt. Um, That's great. The it's just great. Because I never really... You know, I never really watched that show. So just hearing you just like you said, reflect on how that set, you know, what came yeah. to be in this day and age. It's, that's really cool to hear. Oh, I really love Lucy. Cool. It was just an incredible. That was the standard setting sitcom benchmark. And then came okay. the honeymooners with the foursome mm-hmm. sure. and the Flintstones. They modeled off of that. And, uh, and then you had, all in the family, which is basically a foursome, the parents and the two, the kid, the yeah. daughter and the son-in-law. And uh, and then all the other shows. And then, of course, Seinfeld is the, the big foursome of the uh, 90s, mm-hmm. the four main characters. Mm-hmm. So um, really, really, really wonderful show. It became like the new, the new I Love Lucy was a model that would set the course for the next you know, a couple of decades here. Right, so, right. Uh, yeah. Oh. Okay, so yeah, so you just if you if there's anything else you want to of course promote or you know um, share briefly, that would be great. And then I want you to also plug you know your Instagram, your website, where people can find you at as as we start to wind down today. <laughs> yeah, sure. No, the website's great yeah. because you get a nice glimpse of everything. It gets you to like some of the music I've composed. If there are piano players out there that want to learn any of them, you could get some of the music on my website. You can go to jwpepper 
they have a thing uh, called My Score. So I have a page there with all my music there. Choral okay. music. There's choral conductors. There's two part, three part. There's four part SATB double choir. There's 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 a little bit of something I guess for all interests and um, and that, well, that that's basically. I don't like to like. I'm not a self promoter that way. I just feel really. I understand. Like, I know. Like, go to the website. <laughs> go to the website. <laughs> okay, then I'll tell people. Here, then you don't. Yeah, I'll just there you go. Go, to, uh, go visit uh, Jeffrey Beagle at uh, jeffreybeagle.com and definitely mm-hmm. follow him on Instagram at Jeffrey Beagle Music. Um, he's on Facebook, yeah. too, where you can just type in his name and it's uh, B I E G L. Um, so I'm going to promote, yes, promote you so you don't have to self-promote there you yourself. Go. <laughs> I know. No, I know. I'm the same. It's it's interesting because if you even look at my social media, I never say anything about myself. It's always promoting my guests. And I'm the same way. Right. Like even if something good happens, I just, I feel so like you. I just don't, I don't like that feeling. It's, it's just for me personally. No, I'm not no, someone like who it. has a huge ego i'm not someone no, you know like you you're no, very humble no. and grounded i try um, i try like my facebook will be i'll promote a concert that's coming up uh mm-hmm. because i think it's good for the orchestra if there's people that are on my facebook that live near there they could come out and help support the orchestra or i'll support sure. on facebook a composer who's writing something new and i'll create a, a facebook group for that project to help bring more conductors and orchestras and uh supporters into it um yeah, things like that, or maybe a page of music that I find interesting, or I'll compare something, mm-hmm. or I'll post some of my new music on there just to let uh, followers see what I'm writing, at least, and see if it appeals to them, you know, if they right. want to hear right. it or whatever. It's it's just a sharing, like sharing and caring kind of a page for me. No, it's great. It's great. Well, thank you so much for coming on today. And, of course, you're always welcome back on in the future um, when you have some, even though you don't like to promote, I'm going to say when you have some new stuff to promote so that I want to hear it and the, the rest of the world wants to hear it. Um, you're always welcome oh, back on. You. It was absolutely a delight and a pleasure. And, you know, thank you for sharing your story, just just what an accomplished um, musician you are. Well, thank you so much for having me on, and good luck with your work. Of what you tell me is very uh, inspiring and very challenging, and um, not easy to do. But it's it's your calling, so I wish you continued success in that as well. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, so yeah, we'll definitely be in touch. Um, if anyone, as we know, couldn't tune into the the live um, show today, there will be a podcast available to stream or download at their convenience. So. Feel free to just, if you want to, you know, plug that or put that out there on any of your pages, that would be great. And um, I will do the same. Okay. Yes, for sure. Thank you so much for coming on, Jeffrey. Again, it was was great. Great interview. Well, thank you for having me, Carrie. And we'll do it in the future again, I'm sure. And everybody stay safe and stay well. Absolutely. Yep. And we'll keep in touch. All right? Yes. Yes. Thanks so much. You're welcome. Have a great day. Okay. Take care. You too. All right, everyone. Uh, Again, the award-winning pianist and composer Jeffrey Beagle. Please uh, check him out. Go to Instagram and follow him at Jeffrey Beagle Music and check out his website, jeffreybeagle.com. And as you mentioned, if you just type his name in, there's there's tons of information on him so you can get access to some of his music. Um, He has tons of stuff out there. So please also 
download some of his uh, his CDs and EPs that he has available. Um, if anyone wants to um, become a fan of The Carrie Edelman Show, I'm on Facebook at The Carrie Edelman Show. And um, you can also befriend me on Facebook and or follow me on Instagram at Carrie Edelman. And hopefully I will do some more interviews in the near future. I know it's been a little while, but uh, as we know, sometimes things in life um, interfere with the ability to, to keep this rolling because it's something I do on the side. But again, go to iTunes, over 250 interviews available, and every interview is different. I really, you know, take my time. I do the research, and I'm going to bring you an interesting um, journey and story that will take you on with each person. So thank you so much for tuning in, and have a great day.